You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Buenos dias. That was good. I like that. Hey, we want to welcome everybody watching at home online right now. Uh, we have people visiting with us from other churches, our people who maybe feel immune compromised. I even have a friend who lives in Las Vegas who watches our services every Sunday afternoon while he's food prepping for the week. So we're just welcome everybody gathering here and there, and it's really good to be with you. We had roughly 400 people last week, and that was really good. So just praise God for all of us getting to be able to come together. Praise God. Praise God. God protect us from this blasted virus. All right, we're in this series called Stay Salty. And the whole idea of this series is Jesus had this phrase he used over and over and over again. You heard Derek reference it in the video there. And uh, he used it so much that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus saying it in different situations, which means Jesus used it a lot. You know what this is like as a parent, right? You have that phrase you use all the time with your kids. They know you use it. You use it all the time. That's that phrase for Jesus as it relates to salt. So what I want to do is we're going to dig into today's text, and it's a hard text. It just is. Before we get into that text, let me tell a quick story. Roughly 15 years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church in Colorado. Loved that church, loved those people, and was glad to come here and get to love you. But while I was there, I watched these kids grow up. I watched them grow from 6th grade to 12th grade. Now most of them are married, have kids. They're all old, me like me now. But it was crazy to watch them mature over time. But because I'd spent time with them and I'd kind of fallen in love with them and their families and their stories, my heart ached as a pastor to see them become all that they could be. So we had this retreat, and I was really excited about this retreat because I decided to throw down a message about the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, that God loves them so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. But I wanted this sermon to call some of them into a relationship with him, but others to convict them of the lifestyle that they're living. Now, most of these kids had been with me for a long time. I'd known them for a while. And so what we did is after I threw it on the gospel and I was really proud of myself, we had this really powerful sermon. I was really thought it was good. What he did is we sent them into groups. And in their groups, I gave them a piece of paper and I asked them to write on that piece of paper one or two, the piece of paper was a little bigger, one or two sins that they were struggling with. And my hope coming out of this was that they would either choose to stop living in that sin and give it to God, or they would stop letting Satan beat them up over something that was in their past that God had already gotten rid of. So after they wrote this down, they were supposed to talk with their groups, and it was going to be a safe place. What I did is I took a bowl, and I went around, and I just gathered them up. I said, just crumple them up, throw them in here. I'm not going to look at them. I'm not going to look at them. I'm not going to know what it is. It's a safe place. Just throw them in here, throw them in here, throw them in here. And when they put them all in there, I came up to the front after they all had their groups. Uh, the band started playing. We'd created this powerful moment. It was going to be great. And I had this idea. See, what they didn't know is they wrote their sin on a piece of flash paper. Do you know what flash paper is? Yeah. A couple of you know what flash paper is. The rest of you don't. Be amazed. I'm just kidding. So flash paper is magic paper. It's what magicians use. And so what happens when you light flash paper, when you catch it on fire, maybe, just like your sins have been erased. See it? You get it? Okay, so now, take 100 kids, pieces of paper about like this, balled up, thrown into a bowl. I'm standing before them, band is playing, moment is awesome, I've got their full attention, I'm throwing down the gospel, I'm applying it to their lives, I pull out my fire stick, I light this bad boy, and what I fail to realize 
is that between the amount of flash paper and the bowl, a cannon is about to come shooting out of it. Completely singe one side of my face and the eyebrows, lost half an eyebrow, almost all of my eyelashes, and singed the rest of them. The moment is over. It is completely lost. Whatever I had accomplished prior to that was gone. Half the room is going, <gasps> apparently I made a look on my face because they knew I didn't know it was coming. When the fireball went up into my face, apparently I had a, uh-oh, look. <laughs> scared me half to death. My wife is scared. Now she's, she's laughing at me this weekend knowing I'm telling this story. And it just got me to thinking, have you ever noticed that life just doesn't go according to plan sometimes? Have you ever been in this situation? You've got all these grandiose plans, exactly how everything's going to turn out, and then life happens, and you go, okay, I don't really know what to do anymore. So what do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? Well, here's my bridge between that story and this. When I wrote this series, I had Mark in chapter 9, that's where we're going to be today, in mind, and the problem is, when I started digging in this week, I'm 10 hours in, and I go, Jesus, I literally don't know what you're talking about. I'm reading commentary after commentary. I'm listening to other preachers handle the text. I even called a friend of mine who's a professor in a Bible college. He's a doctor. And he goes, Matt, nobody knows exactly what Jesus means. We really honestly don't know what Jesus means. And I'm going, great, because this is the text I picked for this Sunday. I don't know what to do with it now. So I'm going to do my best. Life does not always go the way that we planned it. A fireball just blew up in my face. Now I'm going to show it to you. And then here's what I'm going to do. We're going we're to go down this rabbit trail that I've been going down for 20 or 30 hours over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to show you the text. We're going to wrestle with what it says. I'm going to tell you the best that I can, and I'm going to hold it loosely and say, if I'm wrong, grace be upon you. But I think by the end of this, you can still be blessed by what Jesus has to say. Here's the text, the first part of it. Ready? Mark chapter 9, verse 49. It says this, everyone will be salted with fire. Thank you very much, Jesus. Some translations will say everybody will be salted with salt. We don't even exactly know what the right phrase is. We don't exactly know what Jesus means. We know this, the next verse, verse 50 says this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And look, whether the rest of what I say makes a difference or encourages you or challenges you in any way, perhaps the last part of that phrase right there, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other, is the most powerful thing that you could hear today. But if you really want to understand what the Bible means, you have to understand this little phrase that we learned in Bible college. Ready? Context is king. I want you to say that with me. Ready? Even those of you at home, you may be feeling silly, but say this with me. You may be running right now. Just say it out loud. Ready? Context is king. What that means is, it doesn't really matter what words a person uses. It's what a person means when they use those words that matters the most. Have you ever had a fight with somebody you love? Your spouse, your parents, your kids, your best friend, somebody in your life group or church or whatever it is, coworker. I'm not talking about somebody you completely disagree with, somebody on Facebook, somebody on the opposite news channel of the one you like. It's easy to think those people are crazy and don't know what they're talking about. I'm talking about somebody you love. Have you ever had a fight with them? And the fight came because you said something and they took it another way. Every married couple in this room better raise their hand, all right? 
This is normal in my life because I'm a speak first, think second kind of person. I tend to say things and I don't always mean to. I had a friend once, I went to him early in our friendship and I just said, what is that one thing that if I say it, that one joke that if I make it, it just goes deeper to your core. And then I was surprised, surprised by his vulnerability. He just told me, it's this. And so that told me, don't go there because there's a story behind his life. There's a story, a context to him that that joke hurts him deeply. And I don't ever want to hurt my friend. I don't want to just be shooting off at the mouth and accidentally offend my friend. Here's the thing. If you want to understand what Jesus means, you have to read the context. What happens in the verses around what Jesus said? What happened in the chapters before that led into this? And what comes immediately after? And if you really, really, really want to do good Bible study... Jesus is a rabbi. I don't know if you knew that. He's a teacher. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day, they would go around and they would quote two primary other rabbis. One of them is named Gamaliel. And they would say something like, well, Gamaliel says, and then they had authority because they quoted this guy that everybody respected. And again, there were two primary camps or a few others, and they'd line up with one of these camps and say, this person says, this person says, therefore it must be true. Jesus blew all of that out of the water. Jesus shows up and he says, you've heard it said, but I say. And two things are happening there. Sometimes Jesus would quote an Old Testament text and he would say, you've heard it said, here is in the Old Testament. In other words, the word of God says it, but I say, and what he's doing is he's bringing new wine, a clarification, the new way, the new life. Now we're gonna do it this way. But a lot of the times he's quoting those old rabbinical teachings and it would blow people's minds. They would say things like, who is this man? He teaches with his own authority because Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and help us understand what it means to live for God. Now that's critical because if you want to understand some of Jesus' teachings, you have to go back to the Old Testament and understand the context. I don't know what you did during your quarantine. I spent a large portion of my quarantine studying the book of Leviticus. Now, aren't you jealous? <laughs> Leviticus, for those of you who don't know, is the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's one of the books of the law. And it is very difficult to understand, which is why I thought, hey, if I got free time, why not? I've never done it before. And I've gained a lot of wisdom and insight and things I still don't understand. I'm still studying, okay? But I'm just gonna drop a little Levitical wisdom on you today, which you may be like, oh, great. So glad I picked today to tune in. Do not turn this off yet. Because while we're not gonna go real deep into Leviticus, there's something specific in Leviticus today that you need to know that makes sense of Mark chapter nine, at least a little bit. So in the book of Leviticus, we're told about all these different kind of offerings. And the one offering we're told about is called a propitiation. A propi propitiation is a deep theological word. It just means when I've sinned, I've transgressed a holy God. I've sinned against him. Somehow I have to make up for that sin. And so I can bring in an animal sacrifice. It could be a bull or a goat or a sheep, depending on exactly what kind of sin or what kind of sacrifice it is. That's not the focus of today. But the one thing I want you to latch on to, because it's consistent in these, it had to be a pure animal. Without blemish is the word. And all of that pointed us to Jesus. Because we're told that Jesus was the perfect lamb of God. And he takes away the sins of the world. He literally was without sin. He had no blemish in him. In fact, Hebrews tells us that even though he was tempted in every way like we are, he did not sin. 
So that's critical to understanding. When you get to Leviticus 2, the very second chapter, we learn about something called a grain offering. And there's all kinds of things we're not going to go into, but essentially a grain offering was at the end of the harvest season, when the grain is popped up, you take a portion of the grain and you bring it to God as a first fruit to say, thank you, God. Because you realize as a farmer, there's a lot you didn't control in this process. Well, you can fight against the bugs at the end of the day. If there's going to be a locust swarm, not a lot you can do. While you can do a certain amount of things to care for the crop at the end of the day, you can't make it rain. You can't make the sun come and not be too hot or not be too cold. You can only do so much. The rest of it is really all on God. So when the harvest came, you would bring in portions of it just to say, God, thank you for your provision. Let's do it again next year. That's essentially what a grain offering was. Now, without going any deeper, you can read Leviticus 2 on your own later and get more. I want to point out two things about the grain offering that inform us context about Mark chapter 9, right? Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. Now, the reason that's important is because yeast means something. Honey means something. In fact, the best way to maybe explain it to you would be this. Yeast or honey, either one, represents an outside element that is influencing the purity of the offering. So the grain offering by itself was pure. But if I have to stick an activator or something in it, it's changing it to make it become something different. This is important because when you get to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, remember we're in Mark 9. Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this in verse 15. Watch out! Beware the leaven, that's yeast, of the Pharisees and the leaven, that's yeast, of Herod. What does Jesus mean? So the context of Mark 9 is partly building on Mark 8. Well, in this context, these would be two opposite extremes. Let me just try to help you make sense of them. The yeast of the Pharisees was this. So the Pharisees were the best of the best of the best. In fact, the Pharisees loved to study God's law and then make up rules to keep you away from sin. The, the heart of it might have been really good, might have been pure at first, I'm not sure, but it became really unhealthy in Jesus' day. So just to give an example, and I've used this one before. Let's say it's Sabbath day, and God said, keep the Sabbath holy. So what the Pharisees did is they came along and said, okay, here's how you keep the Sabbath holy. Don't walk more than a quarter mile. Don't lift more than this amount of weight. Don't do these kinds of works. And they had all these lists of rules. So not only did God say, keep it holy, they told you how to keep it holy. And Jesus says here, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Phariseeism today is what we would call legalism. I want to clarify for a second. See, it's really good in your pursuit of God for you to train yourself in righteousness, to train your body to live and act in a certain way. The problem is when all those little behaviors that you're using to train yourself become the goal, then we're missing the point. So see, you may have, like my students who had all these sins in this bowl, you may have a certain thing that's just eating your lunch. It's just owning you. And you need to take a pharisaical approach for a season while you train your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength to live in a way that is pleasing to God. But you don't want to live there. You don't want to stay there. Because that's not freedom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, the other problem with the Pharisees is they believed that they were better than everybody else. So not only did they legalistically live a life, but they had a judgmental heart and spirit about everybody else who didn't do it the way they did it. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. It'll ruin you. 
Jesus actually says at one point, if you want to get into heaven, you better become more righteous than the Pharisees. Nobody was more righteous than the Pharisees except for Jesus because he actually fulfilled God's perfect law. But then there's the yeast of Herod and that would be like the opposite extreme. It'd be, here's a big word, right? But I'll explain it, but licentiousness. It would be like debauchery. It would be like, you're great. You just find a hard word with a hard word. It would be like, doing whatever you want whenever you want because it feels good to you. Herod was such a vile man that John the Baptist actually calls out his evil publicly. He gets beheaded for it. Doesn't go over real well. But that's critical to understanding what Jesus is saying here in the chapter before because he's saying, watch out for legalistic Phariseeism, but also watch out for activity that's just, hey, whatever, I'll do whatever I want, whatever I want. These two extremes are equally as dangerous. Watch out for them. Now, remember, we started in Leviticus 2. If you want to bring a grain offering, don't mix it in there. That was normal. In the Passover, when the, the Hebrew people ate what we would call today matzah bread, you ever see it before, it was a, a dried bread without yeast put in it, so there was no activator in it. So when Jesus at the Last Supper takes the bread and breaks it, it's a crackerish type of bread. You can actually buy it in many stores today. I've used it before in the sermon illustrations. You could buy it because it's right there. There's no yeast involved. There's no sin involved in it. Watch out. Be careful. Well, there's one other verse of Leviticus 2 related to grain offerings that they can form us on Mark chapter 9. And it's verse 13, and it says this. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings and salt all your offerings. Salt all of them. What exactly does that mean? The idea of the salt of the covenant or the covenant of salt is used three times in the Old Testament and nobody knows exactly what it means. Nobody knows the context. It literally just drops it in there. It's like we're supposed to know what it means, but we don't. But it's fascinating that we are told to salt all our offerings, whether an animal offering or a grain offering or a drink offering, put salt on all of them. Because see, salt, again, and especially in Jesus' day, but this would have been way before Jesus' day, salt did stuff in life. Salt preserved. Salt uh, 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 literally healed. Salt added flavor. And you can bring to bear all of these meanings of what salt does in the world and put it together as to why God is saying, add salt to all of your sacrifices. If you could summarize Leviticus 2, these two points, and then bring them into Mark 9, here's how I would summarize it. Be without sin, that's yeast, and then add salt, life, flavor, preservation to your sacrifice. So now, let's take all of that understanding of Leviticus 2. Congratulations, you just finished a class on Leviticus 2. Well done, you graduated. Well done, well done, all right. Now let's bring all of that to bear on Mark 9, and let's look at the context around these hard verses and see if we have any wisdom to gain. Ready? Mark chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Have you ever seen a big millstone that's used for crunching up like cornmeal and whatever? It's huge, massive concrete. There was a church camp I've been to before. I had one on the ground and it had this verse on there. Be better to have this thing tied around your neck, thrown in the sea. In other words, you'd be better off. You'd be better off to kill yourself in a terrible way. Let me unpack this real quick because there's kids in the room. Listen to me real quick. Jesus had zero intention for you to do the things that he is talking about today. 
including kill yourself. Jesus is using something that we call hyperbole. Hyperbole is when we say something very extreme to make a point. I'm going to blister your bottom if you don't stop it. Did you ever intend to actually create blisters? Okay, don't answer that. Did you? You're saying something extreme to make a point. We know Jesus didn't literally mean the things that he's about to say because in 2,000 years of Christian history, not one Christian leader has ever actually done these things. But Jesus wants you to understand how very serious he is. Who are the little ones? Well, in Matthew chapter 18, the same story, we see that he actually has a little child in his lap. Maybe he means little children, but Mark 9 doesn't give us that context, which means I think it's bigger than that. It's that, but it's more than that. It's more than that. These little, these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. In other words, be very careful. Whatever you're saying with your mouth, whatever you're doing with your heart and your body and your life, be very careful that you don't cause another believer to stumble. God forbid that you should cause someone else to fall away from God because of you. Be better for you to not have to stand before God on judgment day. Better to deal with it here than to wait to deal with it there. It gets even more serious. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, just cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, just whack that puppy off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck that bad boy out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Welcome to Kingsway. We are so glad that you're here with us today. Please do not tune me out yet. This is what one of those what we call hellfire brimstone texts. Jesus is not threatening you. It's not a threat. This is a warning. It's a warning of Jesus saying, please understand how serious sin is. It's been said that in the ancient Hebrew days, when they had the temple set up, that sometimes there would be like a river of blood coming out from all the animals sacrificed. See, if you were really, really wealthy, imagine a system where you could take in an animal, a goat, a sheep, a bull, and it was expensive, but if you were really good at what you were doing, you know how to make more of those. You know how to manage it just right. Big deal. So you paid a little bit. But see, that's the wrong perspective to have. If the perspective is, God, thank you, Thank you for taking away my sin. Thank you for giving me the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Then how do I live to please you? Not out of fear for what you might do to me, but out of love and joy. There was one uh, father of the faith, I think it's Justin Martyr, but I forgot to write this down. He took this passage so seriously that whenever he was tempted, he would literally throw himself into the thorn bushes, to the briar bushes. Like whenever he saw an attractive person walk by, he would literally just, right into the bushes, like, It's like a Monty Python skit or something. I knew guys when I was in high school and Bible college, they would put rubber bands, sometimes multiple rubber bands on their wrist. And whenever they were tempted, they just whack. For what purpose? I mean, did it change anything? 
Part of the reason we know not to take Jesus literally here, not only does history tell us that, but because Jesus has told us so many other times that the problem isn't what comes out of you, the problem is what's in you. See, you can't cut off enough body parts to change your heart. The problem is you need an expert surgeon. You need a master doctor. You need somebody who understands your heart, soul, mind, and strength better than you ever think that you do. Somebody who knows how to get in there and really bring about lasting change inside you. That doesn't mean don't care. That's what he's saying. Care deeply, but come to the place where your sins are forgiven and the doctor's always in session. He loves you. He wants to do something about it. But there's something I left out of here, and I think this is very powerful. Did you notice when I read through this, I read you verses 42 and 43. I read you verse 45. I read you verse 47. And we've already read verse 49. We'll get to that in a second. But did you notice what's missing? 44, 46, and 48. So I'm missing it, sorry. If you have a Bible in front of you, depending on the translation you have, you'll notice that the verses are or are not in there. You will see that they're missing in most of our modern translations. The King James and the NASB have them. The rest of them don't. Now, many today have gone, see, that's why you can't trust the translation today. Actually, no. Here's what's happening there. So first of all, if you're watching online or you're in this room, you have questions about the Bible or God, I tried to just drop little things in here, little nuggets to help you. You can look this up. There are tens of thousands of full and partial copies of the New Testament books that we have today. There are more copies of the New Testament books closer to the time frame of the first copy ever, and it is the most reliable historical book you will find anywhere in the world. Some of Plato's writings we have like three copies of and nobody questions whether Plato wrote it. And we have tens of thousands of full and partial copies of the New Testament texts. The oldest copies, which we found from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was after the original NASB, which was after the King James, they go, they're dated from before. They don't include verses 44 and 46. They do include verse 48. But what's interesting is all three verses say the exact same thing. What that means is this. Whether they were originally in there or were not originally in there, it's irrelevant. It's all in verse 48. It changed nothing. Every time you find a textual variance, it changes nothing about the meaning. So you watch these really bad history channel videos and whatever, and they tell you you can't trust the Bible and there's all that. No, that is not happening here. But let's just imagine for a minute that verse 44, 46, and 48 are all actually included what you would have is a rhythmic drumbeat to the reading of this passage. You ever listen to a song? You may remember the verses. You may forget them. You may mix them up. Sometimes we do that. You know, our worship team confuses verse two with verse one. But you know what you rarely mix up? The chorus. Because you sing it over and over and over. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. 
I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. And you're singing in your car, right? And you're like, yes, praise Jesus. People next to you are like, what is that crazy person doing? (laughs) Now imagine with me. Verse 48. Where the worms that eat them do not die. And the fire is not quenched. Here's your drum beat. Ready? Do not lead another astray. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the ocean. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to avoid the fires of hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Better to have your foot cut off than thrown into the fires of hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Better to have your eye plucked out than to be cast into the fires of hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you get it? Jesus is giving in the strongest possible words that he can muster. Do not let this become your story. Whatever it takes, do it today. And then he says in verse 49, because everyone will be salted with fire. You know, the thing about fire as I've told you before, that our God is a consuming fire. And the same fire that will one day be present in judgment is the same fire that's present today that purifies. See, the fires of hell will, yes, judge those who are separated from God. They don't have the blood of Jesus covering over their sin. But those who are in Christ Jesus, they're gonna be salted with fire. The troubles, the hardships, the challenges of this life are going to only purify them more and more and more and more. But what good is salt on a fire if it loses its saltiness? Brothers and sisters, whether you're watching at home or here with us live right now, what Good is having the forgiveness of God in your life if you're just going to live the yeast of Herod or the yeast of the Pharisees. That's why Paul comes to this conclusion after studying all this in Romans chapter 12, and he says this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, that God didn't destroy us Earlier in Romans, he says, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you to get your life put together. While we, me, were enemies of God, Jesus said, I love them, I love them, and I'm gonna die for them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper Worship. 
And it goes on. What was the question we started with? When life doesn't go according to plan, what do you do? You offer your body as a living sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. You ever find yourself at a place in life where things were not going the way you thought they were? The way you thought they were gonna head, what you thought you needed to do, and all of a sudden, you're gonna need a pause. It could be a quarantine, it could be a company closing, it could be marriage falling apart, it could be getting caught in something you're tremendously ashamed of. What now? Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. And then you will be able to test and approve God's will. Perhaps what you need to know, friends, please don't miss this. Whatever you came in here carrying today, whatever is weighing you down, whatever feels like a weight between you and God, a separation between you and God, Jesus wants to deal with it. He wants to remove it as far as the east is from the west. He wants to throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. He wants it to go away. But then what he wants in return is for you to give him your life so that the very fire that God has placed in you through the Holy Spirit will make your life have significant meaning, like a sacrifice lifted up to him. Mark 9:50. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. I'm gonna close in prayer. I wanna ask God to stir in this place in two very specific ways. Number one, if perhaps you've never given your life to God, I just wanna tell you right now, you need a savior. Jesus is his name. You can't save yourself. Do not let the yeast of the Pharisees who thought they were good because of their activity lie to you. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. Number two, if you're a believer in this room and there's something just eating your lunch, would you lay your body down as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? Do whatever it takes. Get help, reach out to a friend, go to our Connect counter. We have ministries and resources just for you, but do not, under any circumstances, act like it's no big deal. Let's pray. Hey, Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We thank you, God, that we're able to gather. And God, I do pray a protection over all of us right now. But in the name of Jesus, Father, I pray for those watching at home or even in this room present right now. God, I pray in Jesus' name, draw those who have never given you their life to yourself. Jesus, you died to become the ultimate sacrifice, God, so that none of us would have to earn our own way. Oh, God. Raise up somebody, some man or woman in this room, in there, right now at home, who would receive the perfect love of Jesus. And God, I pray right now for all of my believing brothers and sisters, 
But for whatever the reason being, they've lost their way. They've, they've started to doubt. They've been stuck in sin. They've been self-medicating through something. And they know it's time to lay it down and give it to you. God, stir in them a willingness to let you have it, God, to trust in your mercy, but to be willing to do whatever it takes to cut off whatever needs cut off, but to not dabble anymore. God, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your grace. In the name of Jesus, all God's people pray.